just uh, bring up before you. First of all, uh, wanted to give you a status update on the uh, construction of that driveway and those parking spaces out here to the north side of the building. Uh, plans for that are proceeding apace. Uh, all we are waiting on at this point is dry weather. And, um, you know, I'm starting to, to think, uh, like I heard someone say, uh, I, I, I'm not interested in seeing the sun, for I have seen it, but for my children. <laughs> uh, well, as soon as we get a few dry days where we won't turn the yard out there into a complete mud hole with equipment, digging that, digging that stuff out so we can pour concrete, we will get that done. And our hope is to have that done and usable by June. So uh, we think that that can happen. It's just all weather dependent, and uh, we'll just need a few dry days to do that. That's the exciting announcement. The challenging announcement that I have to make is I found out from Bob Strybeck, our faithful treasurer, that uh, our financial secretary, actually, um, let me get my roles right, uh, that we are year-to-date about $11,000 behind giving versus expenses. Now, uh, that's uh, challenging. And uh, if we want to be able to continue to do exciting ministry and to be able to continue to expand what we are doing and our outreach into the community, we've got to find a way to close that gap. And so I would ask you to uh, be seeking the Lord as to uh, what you can do on a personal basis and also seeking God's blessing on our church financially so that we can, um, as, I, as I said, continue to do all the ministry that we're doing and even more. Uh, so be in prayer for that and uh, consider how the Lord might, might direct you on that. Uh, I'm excited to be back with you this morning on... Uh, so, uh, in the book of Second Peter, we're, we took a, a little break uh, from Second Peter to celebrate Palm Sunday and the resurrection of our Lord this last week. Uh, next week's Mother's Day, so we'll take another little detour. Uh, but we're, we're trying to progress our way through Second Peter. And let me ask you a question, first of all. I've got this bag of M&Ms here. And I'll just open it. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is about Sunday morning, but whenever, uh, whenever I am uh, done preaching and we get home, it's all like starved refugees who get home who have, who have not eaten in at least a week, at least based on how hungry everybody claims to be. So let me just help you out with that and ask you, who would like some M&Ms? Anybody? Okay. All right. Maybe you can pass them around here, Spencer. Okay, I'm going to have a few. Uh, now, um, okay, make sure they get to the whole room, okay? Um, now, I, I bring those out for this purpose. Suppose that you went to your doctor, and he said to you, he said to you, you have stage 2 cancer. And then he said, but don't worry, I've got the ideal treatment. And he brought out a big bag of of M&Ms. And he said to you, if you take two of these every day for the next year, you'll be cured. Now, a lot of you, if you had a relatively um, moderate level of sophistication, 
would think two things. Number one, it's time to look for a new doctor. And number two, it's time to report this quack to the state licensing board. But let me ask you a, another, another question. What, if, what would happen if instead of realizing this guy is a quack and a charlatan, you continued to every morning faithfully eat your M&Ms? Eventually, what you had been taught and told would come back to bite you, and it would take your life. And that is part of what Peter is trying to tell us in Second Peter, that false teachers oftentimes come along and offering you something which sounds very good. I mean, who doesn't like M&M's? But what they give you, in fact, if you take and swallow what they have given you and keep ingesting it, what is meant, according to God's word, to give you life is going to eventually catch up to you and bring you death. What would you think? Let me ask you just another question. If you did keep taking your M&Ms as prescribed, and then one day the consequences did catch up to you and you realize, I'm dying, what would you think of your doctor at that point? Would you think, oh, well, this is a loving guy. You know, he just didn't want to tell me the hard truth, he, but he was being so loving or would you think this guy has been unspeakably cruel to me? Because instead of offering me that which would bring me life and healing, even though it would be much more painful, I've watched enough people go through chemotherapy that I guarantee you, given a choice between taking M&Ms and chemo, most people would pick M&Ms. But on the one hand you will have life, and on the other, you will eventually have death. And what seems to be loving is actually cruelty. And what seems to be cruelty is actually the most loving and kind thing you can do. The Apostle Peter is a good doctor. He recognizes that sin is like cancer, and it ultimately brings us not just physical death, but eternal death and separation from God. And so he's, he is writing this book. This is his second letter. This is the last letter that we have from the Apostle Peter, uh, the last communication that's recorded uh, from Peter's life to the church. And he says this, there's a lot of guys that are going around, if I can summarize Second Peter, what it's about is this, that there's a lot of guys going around offering the theological equivalent of M&Ms for cancer patients. And you need to be on your guard against them because what they are saying is ostensibly Christian, but in fact is false. A lot of people in our day think that it is cruel to teach people what the Bible actually says. 
because it's narrow, it's exclusivistic, it's not tolerant, it is very binary, there is heaven, there is hell, there is life, there is death, there is Jesus and everything else. And a lot of people think that it's not very loving to do that. But Peter says that especially where it touches the gospel, that the most loving thing you can do is to proclaim what God's Word does, in fact, say, and to denounce the bad physicians as being what they are. Uh, Because there is truth and there is falsehood. There are those who bring the word of life and those who, if you take their advice and their teaching, will bring death. And when in a day when there are so many people who claim to speak for God, it's absolutely critical, absolutely critical that we as the people of God be able to distinguish a good doctor from a bad one, a false preacher from a true, those who cling to what God's Word says and those who distort it to their own destruction and to the destruction of those who listen. And so I put together a list uh, uh, out of, this is, uh, this is Peter's list. I, you, I've heard one preacher call it the list of the loathsome. Uh, this is all the negative characteristics that characterize someone who is a false teacher. And Peter wants us to understand what characterizes these people and, and so that we can spot them. Just like you ought to be able to spot a bad doctor. You know, I don't want to go see a doctor with an online degree. Okay, I know, especially if it's, you know, one I've never heard of. I don't want to see a guy who's prescribing M&Ms to all his cancer patients. And Peter wants us to be able to distinguish true preachers from false. And so he gives us this list, and I've summarized these things into five characteristics. Uh, the first one is this, that false teachers are arrogantly immoral, Let's read it. Uh, Chapter uh, 2, verse 10b, went through 10a uh, the last time we were here, but 10b uh, down through verse 14. Uh, Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. And with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. Now, one of the characteristics of the heretics, these false teachers in Peter's day, was the belief that was influenced by Greek philosophy, that human beings were a a dualistic entity with a body and a spirit. That's okay. So far, so good. But what they taught was that the body was this lower, banal sort of prison that your spirit was housed in. 
and that what mattered was the things of the Spirit, and so it did not matter at all what you did with your body. And so you could be as immoral as you wanted to be as long as it was just with your body because it didn't affect your spirit in any way. Now, let me just tell you this. If you want to get up some followers for a new religious system, just tell people they can do whatever they want and it's pleasing to God, that's a good one. You can get a lot of people up for that. And what these guys taught, in addition to that, he says they slander celestial beings. You remember that part of Genesis chapter 6 where it talks about how the sons of God went to the, the daughters of men and had children by them? They taught that that wasn't an example of wickedness, but as an example to follow. That that was a prescriptive thing, and that immorality was angelic. If you want to be really spiritual, be immoral. Now, and he says that in that, they are slandering celestial beings because the angels would never, first of all, do that if they wanted to honor God. And second of all, that the angels would not stoop to characterize us by our sinfulness in front of God. In other words, they... These guys celebrate the sin committed by a few fallen angels. But angels would never even stoop to accusing human beings of the sin which they actually do. They twist the scripture, in other words, to make it say something that it does not say. And Peter calls it slander. And he says, these guys are blaspheming about what they don't even understand. That the Scripture is clear on this, and they are blaspheming God and His character and the character of beings that He made, and they don't even know what they're talking about. He says, in fact, that they are like jungle animals. That they are born only to live a life and die only to be caught and killed. You know, if you think about a deer, you know, deer are pretty cute and neat and fun and graceful and beautiful, but they're also tasty. There it is. I mean, I, you know, and, and why did God put the deer on the planet? To feed me and my family. (laughs) That's it. Okay. And, and Peter says, these guys are acting like dumb animals. And in their thinking, they are not having their thinking rise any higher than a dumb animal. And they think they're lofty and high and exalted and spiritual. But actually, they're like a dumb animal in their understanding. And, and he says this, that God will pay them back. It says they will be paid back, meaning God will pay them back with harm for the harm they have done. Let me ask you this. Who said this? Better to have an upper millstone tied around your neck and to be cast into the sea than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Who said that? Jesus said that. In other words, God takes those who pick on and take advantage of and abuse his children very, very seriously. 
And he should. Because God is not less than a good father, he is more than a good father. And if I can tell you, somebody picks on one of my kids, they better watch out. They better hope the police get them before I do. Uh, That's the reality of it, is that God resents it and is angered by it when these guys come in among his people and sow what brings destruction. And he says they'll be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. And then he goes on and he explains how immoral these guys are. Most people who are immoral have enough sense to carry on their immorality in secret and in the dark. They don't want to be seen, in other words. Because there's still a part of them, their conscience, that says, uh, you know, it's a little early for this kind of stuff. But he says their idea is of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. In other words, they don't care who sees. They don't care who sees. He says they are blots and blemishes. If you offered a sacrifice before God in the Old Testament, it had to be without spot or blemish. It had to be perfect. And he says these guys are not just imperfect sacrifices. They're the blots. They're the blemishes. Peter, he says, they're not ashamed of what they're doing, in other words. And, and then he says that they feast with you. In other words, these guys have worked their way into the churches that Peter is writing to, and they are participating in communion. Because in the, in the communion ceremony, they had a, what was called a love feast, And then they would celebrate communion together. And so these guys are representing themselves as if they are Christians, as if they are members in good standing with the church of Jesus Christ, and they are not. And then it says that they have eyes full of adultery. Literally, what that reads is, eyes full of an adulteress. And it says they never stop sinning. In other words, they're always looking. And they seduce the unstable. What that means is this, is that these guys are false teachers, and whenever they see a woman in the church, what they're thinking is this. I wonder if this is a woman that I can seduce and commit adultery with. That's bad. These guys are always looking. They're always out for some unstable, weak-willed, vulnerable woman to take advantage of. And he says also they are experts in greed. So if we want to summarize this first section, it would be this. These guys are arrogant, and they talk, they talk about and teach things that they don't even understand. They're immoral. They're not, just Im- they're not just immoral generally. They're proud of their immorality and celebrate it. And they're greedy. So if you're looking for a false teacher, look for a guy who's puffed up, who's immoral and unashamed about it, and who's greedy. And there's more. 
He says also that they have sold out. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You know, when you, uh, if you get into musical culture, particularly an alternative type musical culture, there's always a period in the person's life when they're not all that popular and they're just making music that they like, and they've kind of have this group of fans that are real devoted, but the guy's not really making any real money. And then he finds a record label. And then all of a sudden his face is on t-shirts and they're having a concert tour. And and you know, there's somebody else writing some of the music. And what do people say? They sold out to the man. And Peter says that one of the things that characterizes a false teacher is that they have sold out. Let me tell you who Balaam was. Balaam was a prophet in the in Old Testament days, and he w- would get hired by these various kings to pronounce the blessing of God on whatever it is they wanted, and they would pay him a large sum of money to do this. And so what, whichever way the wind blew, that was which way his prophecy went. And so if he wanted, if you wanted somebody to be cursed, well, we need a little more money because he's offered me a lot to bless him. So get your checkbook out. And Balaam got hired by the king of Moab to go out and to stand on a hilltop and to curse the nation of Israel. And as he is on the way there, an angel stands and blocks his way. And Balaam's donkey can see the angel, but the prophet, who supposedly is tapped into the things of God, can't. And so the the angel stands in the way of the donkey, and so the donkey just starts meandering over, and and Balaam's whacking the donkey (laughs) They're trying to make him go back the other way. And finally, they get down into a narrow spot where the angel is right in front of him. And Balaam can't see it. So he's beating the donkey. And the donkey just lays down. And then all of a sudden, God enables the donkey to speak. And he looks back and says, hey, why are you beating me? I mean, I've always been a good donkey for you. Why are you beating on me? And then God opens the prophet's eyes, and he can see what the donkey could see, but he couldn't. And God told him, you go and you speak only what God puts in your mouth. And so Balaam takes the angel's rebuke and the rebuke of his own donkey, which that must be something. i got to tell you, uh, and he goes and he stands on the high hill and, he, and as he starts to pronounce curses on Israel, God jams his stuff and just out comes blessing, blah, 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 you know. And, 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 the, and the king of Moab says, well, maybe we need to move spots. So they go to another hill, same thing, blessing on Israel. And then they go to another spot, blessing on Israel. And so no matter where they stand, Israel is still going to be blessed. Why? Because God is ultimately in control and has his purposes in mind. So Balaam, though, comes up with a really wicked plan. And his plan is this. 
that what we'll do is we'll introduce the Israelite men to idolatry via immorality. Because the nations around Israel, what they were all into was fertility-type cults. And again, if you want to get a lot of converts, start yourself a, a religion like that, and you can get a lot of people up for it. And so they sent in these Moabite women of, uh, shall we say, flexible morals to go and uh, initiate relationships with the Israelite men, and as part of that, worship their Moabite gods. And God then, since the prophet couldn't curse Israel, God cursed his people and sent a plague among them that was only stopped by the action of Phineas, who found one of the perpetrators and speared he and the gal with his spear. And God stopped the plague and the actions of Phineas, who stood for God's holiness. But what he is, the reason he brings this up is this. That Balaam is an example of a guy who sows immorality among God's people and who is willing to say anything that makes him some money. And I'll just tell you this. If you are a faithful preacher of the Word of God as it lies on the page, very likely you will live out your days in obscurity with being known to your people and the living God, and that's it. But that if you are a controversial or edgy or someone who is taking a, a new approach to the Scriptures, very often you'll have a very large audience, and it can be very profitable, and you can make lots of money. Now, that is not to say that everyone who has become famous as a Christian writer or speaker is necessarily a false teacher. That's not true. But material success does often come to those who depart from the Word of God. And Peter says that these guys aren't being faithful. They are being Balaam. They have sold out. And they also teach, this is verses 17 and 18, empty heresy. He says, they are, these men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. When you come to a spring, you expect to get fresh water. Peter says these guys are like going to a spring and finding no water there. They're like when you have a storm come through and you think, oh, it's going to rain. I used to live down in North Texas, and we would have the opposite scenario for what we're experiencing now, where it would be so dry and dusty and hot and everything's just brown and parched, and you're going, oh, that there would be some rain. And you would see some clouds off in the, in, in the west coming in, and they'd start to get dark, and you'd go, oh, it's going to rain. It's going to be great. And you'd want to just go out and stand outside in the storm just to get wet by the rain coming. And then the clouds would just drift on by. 
and the rain wouldn't come. Peter says that these guys are like that. They're like a storm that ought to bring rain that doesn't. They're like a spring that ought to have water but doesn't. How is that? It's because they should bring life with their words, but they don't. They're empty. They're lifeless. And so he says they will be judged most harshly, and that blackest darkness is reserved for them. What's Peter talking about? Peter's talking about hell. The place that Jesus refers to as the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing teeth. And he is saying the blackest darkness is reserved for them. Why? Because there are degrees of punishment in hell. You may not know that, but the Scripture teaches that. Jesus teaches that. That there are degrees of punishment in hell, just like there are degrees of reward in heaven. And these guys, because they know better, but teach contrary to the truth, are going to be judged the most harshly of anybody. And they are teaching people, Peter says, according to what appeals to their sinful nature. In Peter's day, their teaching was, you can do whatever you want. Now, most people in our day wouldn't believe that kind of thing. Instead, the the false teaching in our day that's current in our culture and in all kinds of religious and, and theological streams, even ostensibly Christian ones, is this, that you can believe whatever you want, and it doesn't matter. Peter says, God's Word says, yes, it does. And those who teach empty heresy will be judged the most harshly of anybody because you teach people what appeals to their, to their flesh, but it doesn't bring life to their soul. He says also that they are slaves to corruption. Look at these verses. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Let me ask you a question. Let's suppose you were trying to do a, 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 you know, watch your diet and be on a good exercise program like I am trying to do with varying degrees of success from week to week. Still down about 30 pounds net uh, over last July, but I've got about another 50 to go. But one thing I have not done is this. I have not sought out any 400-pound men for advice. Why? Because someone who is bigger than me is unlikely to have anything beyond theoretical knowledge of achieving the goal I want to get to. And he says, these guys, the sumo wrestler diet is unlikely to have the effect that I want. These guys are selling people the idea, you can do whatever you want. You can be free. 
If you take the sumo wrestler diet, you'll experience a, a, a measure of freedom in that you can, you can literally, as a sumo wrestler, eat whatever you want. You can eat as much Twinkies and bacon and fried eggs and cheeseburgers and mayonnaise and all that good stuff that you want, right? Again, there's freedom in that, isn't there? Up to a point. And then you're enslaved by something else, right? Because you don't experience freedom completely. You just experience freedom in one way that brings slavery in another, in that now they have to cut the roof off the house to get you out. That's not a good scenario. And Peter says that these guys are like that. They promise people freedom while they themselves are enslaved to sin. And they say, come experience the freedom I am found. And people try it, and they then are also enslaved themselves. And he says, it would be better for them not to have known than to know and then turn. I'll tell you this, nothing in the world is more common than people who grow up in Christian homes, going to Christian churches, Bible-teaching churches, who grow up and who turn away from all of that stuff. And some of them become very scholarly, academic, gifted guys, guys like Bart Ehrman, who grew up in an evangelical church, who was part of inner varsity when he was in college, who was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, and who today writes best-selling books telling people how the gospels are all made up, according to him. Is such a person a believer, a true believer in Jesus Christ? Peter would say, no, they're not. But they nevertheless knew what the gospel was and they've turned away from it. And it would be better for them if they had never known than to have heard it and not believed it and rejected it. Whenever I share the gospel with people, uh, inevitably the question will come up, what about all those people who've never heard about Jesus? And I will say this, well, listen, the Bible has a lot to say about that, actually, and has some good answers to that question, but here's the fundamental issue. You are not in that category. You have heard, and you are faced with a choice. Am I going to believe in, trust in Jesus Christ, and repent of my sin, and give my life over to Him, or am I, having heard the gospel, going to reject it? And I can tell you, based on what the Bible does say, that those who knew God's will and rejected it and disobeyed it are far worse off in the end than those who never knew and disobeyed it. And Peter says it would have been far better for these guys never to have known than to know and then turn. And the final marker of a false teacher is that they are an apostate. They knew what the gospel is, and they rejected it. They turned from it. If you're a Jew, the most unclean animals in the world are a dog and a pig. This is what Peter says. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. If you call someone a pig or a dog as a Jewish person, 
I'll just put this out there, but I'll venture to say that you are not giving them a compliment. And Peter picks some things that reveal that the nature of the person is unchanged. Let me give you, let me explain his examples. How many of you have dogs? A dog will roll in and eat anything, absolutely anything. Not to be gross, but we have a dog that thinks that what comes out needs to maybe make a return trip part of the time. Gross. Okay? Gross. Why does she do that? Because she's a dog. If you have a dog that vomits, you know, initially they kind of feel sick and they vomit, and then a few minutes later they go, hmm, snacks. Why? Because they're a dog. Dogs do that. They're gross. They're a lot of fun, but they're gross. You can have, you can, you can raise pigs like people do for 4-H, you know, and you can clean that pig up. And you can, you can throw Tide all over them, get them clean, get them smelling good. You can, you can take boot polish and scrub those hooves and make them look good. And you can take them off to the fair and you can win a prize, get a ribbon, grand champion pig. And you know what happens when you take that pig back home and you turn them loose? They don't look for a clean place to lie down. They go, hmm, where's the muddiest, nastiest, grossest, most stool-infested slop I can roll in? Why? Because they're a pig. And that's what pigs do. It's their nature. Why is Peter using these two examples? What he's saying is these guys represent it like they are preaching Jesus, but in fact their nature has not changed. Just like it's in the nature of a dog to eat its own barf. Just like it's in the nature of a pig to roll in the mud. Unless the nature of the person changes, they will always do what they've always done. And Peter says these guys are apostates. They have, they have heard the gospel, they've rejected it, and they've gone back into their sin, but now they're trying to make it spiritual. Let me, there's not a lot of application here on this text, except it's just a warning. It's just a warning. Stay, be, you've got to be able to distinguish truth from error. What brings life from what brings death? Because there's a lot of stuff out there, amen? In fact, you can find some of the nastiest, most destructive, terrible false teaching in every Christian bookstore in the country. And if I had time, I can give you a list of people that if you follow them, will bring you destruction rather than life. And let me tell you how this happens. Y'all seen the movie Alien? You remember? These astronauts, they find this spaceship and they go, let's go in. This looks exciting. Let's explore. And they go in. And you think, this is not going to turn out well. Because these sorts of scenarios never do. But these guys in their curiosity are sucked into this. And they go down and they find this giant nursery of all these alien eggs. Remember? And one of them hatches out and, and this creature that comes out of it sucks onto this guy's face. 
And you go, oh, this is really bad. <laughs> but the worst hasn't happened yet. Because a few days later, the thing drops off and the guy seems to be fine. And he's going around the ship and having a good time and so forth. And then they have dinner. Remember that scene? And all of a sudden, you start seeing this rippling under the guy's clothes, and this thing eats its way out from the inside. And obviously, the guy dies, but that's not the worst part. He has brought this thing into the fellowship of those he knows, and it grows and gets bigger, and pretty soon it consumes everybody but Sigourney Weaver. I don't know how she escapes. They... They have bad mamas in these, some of these movies, you know. I mean, these, these women are tough in these alien movies. They're, they're rough. You wouldn't want to meet any of them in a dark alley. And Sigourney escapes. But here's the thing. False teaching is just like that. People get drawn in because they get curious because here's something new we haven't experienced before. And pretty soon it attaches to somebody and it plants itself in them. And then it eats their soul from the inside, and then it destroys everyone around them. And this text is here to warn us against the danger of this stuff, because it comes in a lot of times very subtly and looks very harmless on the front end, but eventually kills people's spiritual life. So we have to be careful. Not everyone who comes to you pronouncing the name Jesus means the same thing by it that the Scripture means. You have to be careful. And you need to learn to recognize some of these signs that are present in people's lives. And when you see one of them to do this, run away as fast as you can. When you walk into a spaceship and you see all the aliens, run. This is the time to go. This is not time for a closer look. This is not going to end well. It's time to go right now when we got to leave. Um, you know, the same thing is true with false teaching. When you encounter it, don't, don't say, hmm, I want to see how the book ends. No. When you see one of these guys on some of these religious channels they have on TV and he starts spouting something, that doesn't sound quite right with what the Scripture says, run. Don't go, well, I wonder where he's going with this. No, run. It's poison. And if you allow it to come into your heart, it will kill you spiritually. Let's pray.